Okay, well, we are, oh, obviously I mentioned the book. Um, this book, Strange God, so, you know, uh, why in the world are we doing this? First of all, I, I, it's been something that I've, I've thought about for a long time. I just, most of the things that I read are probably too boring. Um, but the thing is, is that, you know, the subtitle, Unmasking the Idols in Everyday Life, I, I, is what really caught me, because why is unmasking idols important? Well, I think to, to a certain extent we kind of like, okay, of course, yes, we're not supposed to worship idols, we're supposed to worship the one true God. And of course, God bids us to worship him and not another. That's, that's what we read in the, in the prayer service from Exodus chapter 20 and the first commandment. But, you know, one of the things is that we'll, we'll kind of just kind of ponder a little bit is that idolatry is not what it used to be as we kind of read the Bible, and which would actually mean that I think idolatry is so pervasive and common, and it's always been that way. But in today's kind of uh, culture and context, it's, it's uh, I think, a little bit more subversive because we have been so kind of trained to think what this is what idolatry is and if we know what it is then we can kind of put it off into the corner and say that's what that is over there and we're kind of free from it or away from it um and but the reality is is that i think idols are a lot more closer to us today and that in fact there's they're like inside us in a sense we, as we kind of take a look at the book, and we'll just kind of introduce it today, is that there is idols of ideas, and ideas live inside yourself, inside your brain. So um, I think that's why it's important to kind of disengage us in terms of our own thinking. And then on top of that, too, uh, as we'll take a look at, is, is uh, our images of who God is. Well, actually, to a certain extent, a little bit later on the chapter, she has like super idols. Um, I think we'll actually tackle the, the kind of the notion of idols from biblical concepts. And because, um, yeah, because I think that's part of our piety in America, especially. To some extent, I mean, I don't know if you like these things, but there used to be, I don't know if they're still popular today, but uh, like precious moments, precious little moments things. <laughs> to a certain extent, I think that's idolatrous. I mean, no offense to anybody who really likes those. Um, yeah, and uh, in fact, uh, oh, you know, I didn't put it on. I didn't put it on here. Uh, I think we'll do that later. But I have, a, I have a picture of Jesus that's so offensive to me. It's so offensive because it's, it's so not offensive. He looks, you know. And, uh, and, and that's kind of the things that we, we kind of are trapped by in terms of idolatry is that there's part of our piety that we think that is very faithful or true or, or we like it um, that we're just kind of blind to. And, and so that's what I, I think that's part of the, the, the study too is to realize that, hey, we'll be challenged. Now, well, so the book itself, so why, why this book? Like, uh, she's, she's a fun writer. Um, I thought it's really nice to have a woman's perspective too, you know, for a woman's Bible study. So I, I, as much as uh, you know, I'll be leading the discussion, I appreciate not being the only one talking. Uh, her theology is sacramental and uh, liturgical, too. She's, she's a Roman Catholic. So there's parts of the book that, obviously, she mentions a little bit about free will, and you know that should probably 
raise your antennas a little bit. As Lutherans, we believe in a bonded will. Um, so, but, um, but she discusses idols that are so popular without us actually knowing that they're idols. So I think that's, that's another aspect of what I just mentioned. So that's why we're, we're doing this book. Um, now the thing is, though, is we, there's kind of disclaimers and apologies because the problem with pointing fingers is what? You always got three fingers pointing back at you. So as we say, hey, there's an idol, at the same time, there's a big danger of creating other idols. So this is kind of this strange thing is that you, you never really overcome idolatry. This is, this is part of the struggle of being a Christian, is that there's always this continual uh, unmasking. Now, as we get to the end of the study, we'll find out that as we unmask idols, at the same time, we'll reveal what, I, what I'll call like as icons. We'll, we'll, we'll actually reveal something that can then point us towards the Heavenly Father. Okay? So that's kind of the, the struggle. Is that as you un, unmask an idol, well, first of all, you got to overcome it. You say, holy smokes, I can't believe I've been, you know, devoting myself to this. Ask for forgiveness, but then also realize that, hey, maybe... Because an idol, I don't want to get too ahead of here, but we can also then realize that there might be something more for us to actually then see. Okay, so yeah, I think uh, so. I just ask for your poly, you know, for your forgiveness right now. We're gonna we're gonna talk about idols, and you might say, "Boy, that sounds like an idol, Pastor Nelson." Feel free to say that. Okay, because the problem is when you point. You always got three fingers pointing at back at you. That's why you never point. Right, Audrey? No pointing. Okay. Uh, you know, what are idols? You know, if I were to ask the junior hires what are idols, what, what do you think they would say? False gods. False gods. Exactly. What else? Anything else? Yeah. I think sometimes idols can be things that we think of as good. Yes. All right. Now, do you think a junior higher would answer that way? No, okay. That's right. Excellent. Um, Kirby brings up the point is that idols are, are not always inherently kind of grotesque or gross. They're actually good. Um, family, my this comfortable chair, social networking, Facebook. I uh, actually there's there's actually a really, uh, I you know okay so this goes, this goes on to the everyday aspect. Uh, very powerful image from a movie. I got so many things in my head that I'm, I'm trying not to get ahead of myself. But since you brought up family and good things. Uh, there is a, uh, uh, a really nice Russian movie called The Island. And it's, uh, it's, it's not weird or anything like my other Russian movies I've recommended. <laughs> it's very, very, actually very easy to watch. It's, it follows a very normal, typical plot summary, you know. Uh, but it's in Russian, so you'd have to read the <laughs> subtitles. It, it is about a man who, who thinks he... 
uh, killed a, uh, a fellow sailor in World War II. So, you know, it's Russian. And so, uh, and, and so he thinks he's killed this man, and he devotes himself to this penance, and so he becomes, kind of becomes a monk. Or he goes to the monastery. He doesn't really become a monk. But in becoming, going to this monastery, he basically runs the furnace. And this furnace is uh, run by coal. And so, like, the furnace, there's, like, a whole room for the furnace. And he sits there and... But he comes out like a prophet, like a seer. And the seer, like, he, this is a big burden on him. But the thing is, though, is that people get wind of this, the ability to... So people will come and visit him and... Well, eventually, the, guy, the, head, the head guy of the monastery wants to go live with this man in the kind of the furnace room. And, and what, guess what he brings? He brings a blanket. It's a pretty nice blanket. Kind of serves as a mattress, like, you know, mattress or a, 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 a comforter. And he comes in, and he just, matter of fact, you know, he's like, hey, you know, so because sle- this guy sleeps on the floor, on the coal, and he just, you know, he just lays it out and starts, you know, hey, I'm going to said his prayers and he's about to fall asleep. And this, this uh, prophet, monk guy, just goes berserk. And you're like, what in the world's going on? And all of a sudden, you realize that he's, he's there's, there's like a demon attack. But it's all, you can't see anything. So it looks like he's just like a crazy guy. And he's taking his cups and he's, try, he's he, like, he takes empty cups and he's putting down, like, on top of a table, on top of a furnace, and he's, catching these demons. And the, now this, this, the head of the monastery is like, what is going on here? And he's like, oh, I know this demon. I've seen him before. He's, he's really small, but he's really hard to catch. He's like, I don't understand how he got in here. And then all of a sudden he turned and he saw the, the blanket. <laughs> and he, he grabs the, 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 you know, so now the head of the monastery is like freaking out. And he grabs him, he throws him off, he grabs this, and he ends up throwing it into, they're on like this lake or ocean. He ends up throwing it into this water. And the guy's like, what is, I mean, how could you do that? I mean, he's so mad. And so basically the guy says, I have to, if, if there's a demon or an idol, and I have to get rid of it. That's the only thing you do with idols is you, you, you smash them. You don't like try to refine them or, you know, kind of make them look better. You have to smash them. And so he takes this good thing. I mean, this is a blanket. And he, he gets rid of it. I mean, it's such a powerful image of something that's so mundane. But yet at the same time that this, this guy basically, and, and the reason why it was so uh, powerful to the head of the monastery was it was a gift from some other like bishop or patriarch of it and so he attached this meaning to it and it wasn't until this prophet this guy saw it long story short though the guy who thought he killed comes to him at the end of the movie with his daughter who's actually possessed and this this guy uh um exercised this girl and he is reconciled to this man who he thought he killed and then he says, now I can die. And so he, he lays down in his cough. He makes his cough, and he lays down, and he dies. It's, that, that's maybe a peculiar part of the movie. But anyways, I th- it's a very interesting thing about idols, though. I mean, this is, the fanta- this is a fascinating thing about idols, is that 
we, we see idols in terms of, well, and this kind of goes to uh, common perceptions. I have three pictures down at the bottom of that page there. When we think of idols, we, our, kind of our default is this. Like one is, the, I forgot the Hindu god there, the elephant god. And then, uh, and then the middle picture is from uh, uh, Daniel. There's the, you know, Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego standing there. And then the golden calf, right, exactly. So we are, we, when we think of idols, we kind of default to that. We don't think of like, hey, a nice down comforter. So I say, what are idols? I, my simplest explanation of an idol is anything that stands between you and God. Okay? And this is very important. And when I say stands in between, that means gets in the way. We'll find out later that you can actually have something stand in between you and God and actually not get in your way. Carol? Oh, I was going to say that I was cheating. Yes. That's all right. Go ahead and cheat. I always said confession is good for the soul, but maybe not good for the reputation. <laughs> um, but anyway, and paging through the yeah, right. On page nine. Yes. The center. Just talking about you know the first commandment. Yes. No other gods before me. Another way to say the phrase was, "You shall not have any other gods besides me." Right. Strange gods before me. Right. And then she goes on and says, actually. This what is before me? Well, yeah, first, but also in front. Of yeah, exactly. Which means if it's in front of God, mm-hmm. it's between you and God. Exactly. And that's what we, when we, we're actually, Exodus 20. If you want to open Exodus 20, that's great. Go ahead and open it to it. Because we realize Exodus 20, well, it's... Um, I put one through six, but that, that's probably more than you actually need to read. But, and that is, um, so, you know, the story of the, of the Ten Commandments, right? We all kind of know this. We've all seen, you know, Charlton Heston. Okay, so God brings the Israelites to this moment at the Mount Sinai, and he brings them through the Red Sea. Well, first he brings them through the death of the firstborn, the Red Sea, the manna, you know, the food, and then, uh, and then you have Mount Sinai. And as God recites the Ten Commandments, he doesn't go into the first commandment. Actually, his first word is, you know, this announcement of salvation. This is what I've done for you. I've brought you out of the land of Egypt. All right? It's very important because we'll come back to this whole process of God uh, called you out of Egypt into a specific spot, like location, and then to actually to, to do something, to be a certain way. Right? That's very important. That's just kind of the, the template. We'll see that in Genesis also. And then we'll see it in the New Testament. But part of the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. We always think very abstractly. Kind of like, well, yeah, I shouldn't worship other gods. But this is a preposition. And preposition has locatedness or location. Not to get into English lesson here. So, 
stand in front of me. Okay, we always think of someone in front of me. Stand before me. Okay, we think of someone actually literally before me. When God is using this word, he's using it in the located sense. Is that I'm here and you're supposed to be right in front, like you're supposed to be right here. So the flip side would be is that God has you before him. And you have this relationship of standing, I mean if you want to picture it that way, standing looking at each other. And anything that gets in between that is idolatrous and breaking the first commandment. Anything. So not only that, though, as we all know, I'm going to give a little uh, example here. Um, Not that this has ever happened to me in Holly, but, you know, I'm at dinner. It's been a long week. Or maybe I'm eating on Sunday night, and I'm thinking about my week ahead. My wife's talking. Am I listening? Every single time I am. Absolutely. I might, there might be nothing in between us, literally, except for what? What's happening in my head? Okay? So um, this is something important when we think about this, is that it's not simply a, a thing, material object, or, a, or a per, you know, anything material, meaning... Like back in the old days, they had a statue of Moloch and Dagon and Baal. And then they also worshipped the sun and these material things. I think most of our idolatry is, is in the circumstance of that dinner conversation where God is talking to us and uh, our eyes are kind of glazed over thinking about other things. We have something before him. Okay. Anybody who's had that happen to them, you know, it's not nice. You know, you kind of get annoyed. Like my husband, what's wrong with my husband? He's not listening to me. No. You, yeah, everyone knows what that feels like. Not that God feels that way, but he's, uh... so the whole point is that when we think of idols in terms of the first commandment, and this is kind of the fundamental text in the Bible about idols, is the Ten Commandments, first commandment, is that when God says, don't have anything before me, Picture this, God, you, bam, nothing in between. Not just in terms of material objects, but also in you know, the heart, so soul. Surely. But if you move all the way down in Exodus after you get all the commandments. Yes. If you go to verse 21 there. Oh, good job. People remain the distance while Moses approached thick of darkness where God was. Basically saying that faith means darkness. Oh, yeah, so now you're getting way too deep, right? Very quickly. No, you're doing, this is good. So this is something about the notion of faith. Like, I, uh, I don't know if we, okay, let's get, let's, let's, you open it up. Is that as we think about our idols and knowing what an idol is, in order to know an idol, I mean, the act of knowing something, we want to think about thinking. Thinking about thinking, that's uh, it's a very abstract kind of notion. Something that philosophy think, does a lot. But for us here in Exodus 20, it's fundamental to kind of the, the life of, of the well, Old Testament Christians. Because they didn't, so where was God, surely? In the darkness. Now the darkness in this instance is not only just kind of a literal thing, but also in the place where you don't know where up is up and down is down. It's this place where you're just kind of completely disoriented which is very similar to 
Genesis 1, where there was chaos, nothing's around. However, in this instance, what's the one thing that's there? God, exactly. So when he enters into this darkness, this darkness is actually entering into faith, where there is, it's not simply what you trust in terms of your material, like what you touch. So now fast forward to John, right? Um, uh, blessed are those who believe but have not seen. This is kind of an echo of this whole instance. So as we, we kind of think about idols and we think about even knowing what an idol is, even before we get to that point, sometimes our heads, our ideas, our knowledge have to be disengaged from idolatry itself. And that's where I was talking about before is that, you know, this is a lot more complicated than maybe when we first thought. Um, she has a nice chapter on plans, the idol of plans. For a lot of us, that instant oh, that's, yeesh, okay, good. However, just, you know, just the notion of that, that presumption, I'm going to plan something out and this is how it's going to work. That's based on a worldview that's primarily who-centered, you-centered. Okay, so, but, but you have to disengage even that. That's, that that's, a, that's the aspect of knowing something or knowledge where you have to, I mean, this is, so this is so pervasive they have to kind of think about it. So in Exodus, what's really interesting is that these Ten Commandments, uh, uh, you have the salvific, like the act of justification, and then you have the life of faith, the sanctification going on in the Ten Commandments. But then you also have this, like, well, how does that even work? And it works by faith. Moses goes into the darkness where God was. And then right after that, though, are, are the instructions for, uh, yeah, and what's the first thing after the Ten Commandments? It's a subheading, I think, in most of our Bibles. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, idols and altars. Isn't that interesting? So God says, well, you can't have anything in front of me, but go ahead and make this thing. You can't have anything. So there's this kind of tension going on here. So, but let's let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Uh, well, but he also says, "Do not make gods, silver gods, or silver gods." Right. So, what is God talking about there? And uh, let's see here. So, because um, if we, uh, yeah, if you just want to turn to the back here, I think it's uh, the back here. Yeah. So we kind of you kind of understand. Okay, there's something going on here in terms of. Hey, idols are not just the things, but also maybe our, my ideas of how I think things should work. So there is this idea of substitution and separation. Okay, Anything you substitute in the place of God. Now that's kind of very typical for us. So as we think about even the Old Testament and, and what Shirley just said about not making a silver, gold, wooden, carven thing. All right, People back in the Old Testament wouldn't say that that's their God, literally speaking, that thing. Okay? That statue acted as a means to interact with God. So, the, in a sense, it was, it was like a, uh, it pointed outside itself, or so they believed. And this is where things get r tough, because we say, as Christians, we would say, well, that's actually not true. That this idol, there's nothing actually to point to outside of that. 
And that's why the Old Testament kind of the prophets say, you worship wood. Well, they would say, no, we don't. We worship Dagon or Baal as God. We don't worship this statue. Okay, but, but how, do you, how, can, how, can you, how do you get to that point? Well, this is where, this is where important is that um, these idols in the Old Testament actually acted like mirrors. Conceptually speaking, not literally, I mean. Didn't they look at them more as an entry point to God rather than a mirror? Oh, yeah. Well, hang on, though. So this is, yeah, that's what they would say. That would be their faithful Baal response. But as, like, Old Testament Christians, people who worship the one true God, we would say, whoa, wait a second. That's actually not true. It's not a window to something larger than it. It actually is a mirror back reflecting back to yourself. And so what we say is that, so, um, uh, idols, you have this substitution and separation, but when something stands before God, okay, so think about in terms of creation. You have God, and you have animals, plants, trees, and people, humans. That is all of existence. So, what the, the peop- so according to the biblical worldview, Anything that stands in between that relationship is not God, thus it's created stuff, creation. Which, the ultimate of creation was on the sixth day where man was created. So ultimately, as they say they worship Dagon or Moloch or whatever we worship today, it's it's not greater than us. Because anything greater than the sixth day would be God himself. So the idol actually reflects you. Now, it, it, it could be, it could be uh, what you think God should be. That's often, t- I think today is like, well, that's not my God. Or if we you know, find something out that we, we learn in the Bible that really rocks our world. You know, I'm, I didn't learn that when I was a kid. And you're like, holy smokes, my image of God was wrong. And part of your world being rocked is that you realize maybe that was an idol the whole time. But that doesn't really matter to God because he forgives you, he welcomes you back into this relationship, and you move on. Keep going. So, now the interesting thing about the idol, though, and this is where it comes, is that the reason why we like idols is because um, we like looking at ourselves. Uh... So from kind of the mundane, hey, looking in the mirror kind of thing to a more grandiose idea that I want a world that is, I, I, can, I can kind of manipulate or control or a world I like. Oftentimes we might talk like that. So I have a, I have a quote here which is probably might be helpful. I have no idea. It's, a, it's from a great book. God Without Being by Jean-Luc Marion. The idol depends on the gaze that it satisfies, meaning that the idol only has meaning until, you know, that I give to it. So it starts with me. Since if the gaze did not desire to satisfy itself in the idol, the idol would have no dignity for it. So I'm giving this idol meaning, and by virtue of me giving meaning to this idol, this idol is reflecting that same meaning back. 
I like a Jesus who is... Exactly. Likes me the way I am. Affirms me... Uh, or, or I like a Jesus who doesn't argue. Or I don't like a Jesus who tells me I'm wrong. All right, we like that. So we say we want that kind of Jesus. We worship that kind of Jesus. And so, but the moment that that no longer happens, then we're no, we're no longer satisfied with that. But you can't refine that image. You have to smash that image. Because because it's a lie. And the only way to get rid of a lie is what? Well, to tell the truth or, or to stop telling the lie. And, and so that would be a, a, another aspect of idolatry is truth telling. But that's, Jan. I, I was just sitting here thinking, you know, we, we hear all these stories through the, uh, the whole Testament about how the people of Israel, you know, bowed down to the idols and that's what got them all in trouble. And it took them until the Babylonian captivity and the late 500 BC until they got it through their head that this is a, you know, but then when they came back, by the time we get to Christ, right. they've literally made, as I look at it, an idol out of the laws. Oh, yeah, right. Good job. Through the Talmud. That's right. The 637 or whatever they were. Yeah, the laws, yeah. The, the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is really nice. So, um, and that, that if you, now, with that frame of mind, you should read the Gospels again, because what we find out is that when Jesus is kind of confronting the Pharisees, we, we kind of have this image that, oh, hey, the Pharisees are kind of jerks and, you know, bad guys. Which, again, is a form of idolatry, because, hey, if I can keep, if I can keep them in that corner, that means I'm not like them. But the reality is, is that this spirituality was part of what was going on at the time. And you had different people who, said, who, who were maybe resonated with Jesus and saying, oh, that's right, that's not the way it should be. But on average, you have a lot of people who believe this stuff, believe this way. So you took something that was of God and you made it what? Less than what it was. So, I mean, this, ha this would go to the very nature of the things itself, like the sun, silver, gold, wood. You take something that God has made and turn it into something that it was not intended for. And actually, that, that goes along with the next thing real quick. But, Holly. Uh, this is like another avenue. Yeah. Um, in the Orthodox world. Right. They use the icon in a really specific way. They actually yes. the icon and say a really specific prayer like at the icon. Right. Idolatrous. Yeah. Yep. Oh, I forgot mine. Yes. They kiss them and they love them. Acts of devotion. All right, so this is a great segue. All right, so hang on. So let's think about this. All right. So the next little section on the back of that piece of paper is graven images and being made in the image of God. This is very important. Because oftentimes we think, hey, images of God are bad things. 
then we would say we are bad things. I, I, it, this is just ceased to amaze me when I was a kid. I grew up in a, in a Christian denomination that said that you know any kind of image of Jesus was uh, an idol, which of course you know, I mean, would uh, I remember saying to Roman Catholics and Lutherans and, and the Orthodox, well th that's just idol worship. In fact. Uh, the week after I came as, in my ordination, I, there, was a, there was a person who ended up leaving the congregation, and I was so, like, thrown for a loop. I'm like, like first of all, I didn't know who they were. And I'm like, what is going on here? But at, at, uh, at the ordination, I was ordained on Trinity Sunday, but I think I went to church on Pentecost the week before. Because, you know, we had come out to... And Pentecost, we had a procession, and uh, we uh, had the gospel book. And this person, idol worship, couldn't, couldn't handle. My response was like, well, it's God's word. It's, it's the, but it wasn't the word what they were upset. It was the, kind of the images on it. Okay, so uh, that was just bad news. I was like, what? I, it just it just kind of ceased to amaze me. Like, well, wait a second. I mean, this is probably the most obvious thing. It's like it's the Bible. We like the Bible. We shouldn't really be upset about the Bible. But along this kind of continuum is that the image of God, images of God are bad. But as a kid, I was like, wait, but we're made in the image of God. So not all images of God are bad because then that would mean I'm bad. But that's, that's obviously the opposite of what God's saying in Genesis chapter 1. Um, and then on top of that, Colossians 1.15 uh, and, uh, well, John 14.8 through 11. Well, let's just quickly just turn to that. So you, uh, I think we're all familiar with Genesis 1, being made in the image of God. I don't think we need to read that. In the image of God, he created them male and female. Okay. Um, but Genesis 1, uh, Colossians 1.15, this is all going to the Holly's point, by the way, or question. Colossians 1.15, anybody have it handy since I don't? I'm going to read it. Alright, does anyone have another translation? That was the ESV. Anybody else have something else that doesn't use the word image? Okay, that's, I, I think that's in all, I think in all English translations is image. Um, okay, so we are made in the image of God, and Jesus is the image of God. So, you know, there's this obviously connection between Jesus and us in terms of our image or who we're supposed to be. Now, I, I never got to this whole point I never kind of, so when God creates, calls Adam and Eve into existence, or man and woman, he says, there you are, and Adam and Eve say, here I am. Uh, there you are, here I am. Location, existence, and then part of that is what, are, what, are, what is man and woman supposed to do? They're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. They are supposed to create. They're supposed to be part of, this is what God's doing. So God calls man and woman in relationship to him in this spot, in this place, before him, to do 
the, the things that he is doing. All right, that's very important for us as we consider idols and what I would say icons. But before we get to that point, though, um, uh, we're, I forgot the apostrophe, we're called into existence in that place to do that work. Now, if he, so, okay, so when Jesus says, uh, when Jesus is the firstborn, he's the image of God, firstborn of all creation, we think, oh, God, Jesus is before God, um, and to, uh, to do this work, firstborn of all creation, to do this creation. So at this point, in our minds, we, in our picture, where we thought it was just between God and us, we actually have someone standing in front of us, and that is Jesus. Okay? Now, John 14, 8 through 11, you don't necessarily need to go to it, but Philip says, hey, Jesus, this is after the point where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Philip says, oh, hey, can you show us the Father? And that'll be enough. Jesus is like, how long have I been with you? What kind of question is that? Don't you know me and the Father are one? Look at me and you see the Father. So if you have this picture again in our head of God before us, we before God, Jesus now is kind of in between we look at Jesus and we see something more than just a man. We see God himself. God who is infinite, bigger than all our thoughts and our senses, you know, outside the darkness of Exodus 20. So, now the thing is though, so that, that is now in this image, so when we understand images, that is what we, that's our criteria, is Jesus. Now, once we see that, we realize, hey, not all images can be bad because we would be saying that Jesus is bad. Not, there's a lot of like argument jumps there, but in a nutshell, that's, that's what I would say, which echoes my growing up sentiment. How can all images be bad if I'm made in the image of God? Okay, now there's more to that, though, and that is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. I know we're flipping through the Bible quite a bit here, but um, for by grace, everyone knows this, I mean, and I should say everyone, but this is a very familiar, so does anyone know Ephesians 2, 8, 9? It is not by works or our own works, it is a, lest any man should boast. Does anyone know what number 10 is? Okay, good, excellent. So we have this justification verse, God saves you. And then we have this life. Genesis, God creates you. That's an act of justification. I mean, just making you out of nothing and making you into existence to be who you are, to stand before God. To do this thing. Exodus. God calls you out of Egypt. Saves you to be this way in this place. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It's the same thing. God calls you up to be this way. Now, the thing is, though, God's workmanship can be actually literally translated as God's works of art. So we have now art. We have image. We have 
statues. We have stuff that could be confused with idols. That's, that's very important for us to, to kind of understand is that perhaps the images, rather than holding all their meaning and, and be held captive to our imagination, maybe images are more than we can actually think of and, and more than our, our imaginations can actually hold. I forgot to proofread that sentence there. So if you actually come across it, I, that was, that's a uh, diary of the mouth right there. But hopefully you can understand what I was saying is that based on, on all this stuff is we have images who are actually more than what we think they are. And being more than what we think they are, they can actually point beyond themselves. And in this relationship, the only thing beyond ourselves is is God. Okay. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Bam. Isn't it funny? It's 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 kind of it's it's all over the Bible. This 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 kind of interesting little image template, you could say. I mean, I, I, Ephesians 2.10 uh, 2, is very important for me just as a person, but I think it's most important for anybody who is creative. Like, this is where the rubber meets the road. Because, uh, but the thing is, though, is that, like, everybody is an artist in a sense. I mean, not to blow that up too much, but, um, and by being an artist, then we are create, we're caught up in this action of creating. Again, Genesis 1. But the action of creation is not to for ourselves or for creation aspect, but to what? To bring, we, we don't often talk this way, but to bring glory to, to God. So it's to, it's to be a means in which to see God. Jan, and I think Lindsay had a question too. Well, the really Yeah, well, yeah, so what do you have? Relationship is so I know. intertwined there that in order for us to be able to do the works that God would have us to do, we have to be in a relationship with him. Or how do we know what his will is? That's the scary part about that verse. Well, and in, the, and in some, way, on some ways, the comforting part about that verse. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, scary like in a... Kind of what way? Well, I mean, scary in that if we aren't walking with him, there are people out there that God wants us to interact with. Right. Okay. Well, I think it's it's comforting in the fact that okay, if he wants us to do this, then he's going to help us. Right. And give us the ability to do that particular whatever. So, in that thing, so this is where we get kind of, like, if you want to use this artist image, is that when God gives us this thing to do, we are creating either works of art that point towards who God is. And who God is is the saving God who, who wants all of creation to be in relationship to him. Or we're creating what? Idol. 
All right, so now let's get, now let's get to the um, icon. Um, and and so, so when God calls you into existence in his image to stand before him to, to work with him, he's creating you to be more than you are. When I say more than you are, meaning that your entire existence doesn't reside just simply in your flesh and bones, but you have an existence that's beyond you, and that beyond you then is in relationship to, to Jesus, or to God, through Jesus. Okay? So the icon, according to the kind of theology of icons, is that the icon is specifically created to not hold our imagination or not give us the full meaning. Part of, part of that is by the means in which they do. If you look at icons, it's never realistic. I mean, you don't, you don't say, hey, that looks like a photograph. But you know it's a real person. I mean, you know it's a person. You know, hey, this is a cross. Or, hey, you know this is a, uh, uh, a tomb or, or whatever. So you are interacting with, quote-unquote, real things. But at the same time, in the icon itself, through the use of gold, <laughs> and that's, that's important, or silver, any, anything that is, is, is kind of conveyed. So when the gold, as you look at the gold, you should be looking at the gold. You should be seeing what does gold represent. Uh, well, king, not only wealth, but wealth associated with royalty. King had gold crowns or, or whatever. In addition to that, though, uh, not a lot of people realize this because when a lot of us, we have icons that aren't real gold, which is like a picture. But icons often have candles attached, I mean, around it. If you look at a real icon with a candle next to it, the gold actually is illuminating. It shines. Shines with what? The light of God. The light of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. So, so you have all these things in this icon that are conveying something that's more than just what's right there. Now the thing is, though, as you ent- it, that's not the icon itself, though. I mean, it, the icon just doesn't do that. But the icon, the theology of the icon, incorporates what all the stuff we learn from the Bible into it. Is that there's the stuff of the world that can be used to tell the story or, or, or convey who God is, to point beyond itself. So when Eastern Orthodox come to icons and pray to an icon, they would say, I'm not praying to a thing, I'm praying to God. And they can say that, and, and we as Lutherans can agree with that, although that's not part of our kind of our traditional piety. But that we, we're, not ag- we're not against that. We, 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 we are part of the Western tradition. And a lot of Roman Catholics, they don't have icons, but what do they have in there that no, a lot of Eastern Orthodox, none Eastern Orthodox have? Statues, yeah. And that was a, that, that's a debate, actually, within kind of theology historically, where Eastern Orthodox were like, you shouldn't have statues because it's what? Too realistic. And we're, of course, the, the Western church at that time were like, well, I, I shouldn't make it so simple, but uh, they're like, you know, it's, it's this based on the same theology as what you, you, the Orthodox say. Jesus is the image of God. He's a person. So the statue of this person is not the person itself, but a, a, a window into something more. 
But that doesn't always work that way, does it? Okay? I mean, that's the whole point, is that this is something that is good, but we have a very easy thing to twist it and change it into an idol. Jan. Right. Yep. I think, you know, some of us have seen the bones of Peter in at least five different cathedrals. Right. Yep. You know, the footprint of Thomas down in Paraguay, I've seen that one. And, yeah, right. You know, so it's not only the statues, but... Oh, yeah, good job, Jen. Yep, that's right. That's right. Yeah, right. As, Idolized, as, yes. Yeah, as the idols back in the old country. Yeah, now the thing about the relics and about whatever, St. Thomas's footprint in South America or whatever, what's, uh, what's the problem with that? Let's kind of theologically, let's get to the point of it. Like, what's the problem? What becomes what they worship. Okay. People think they're closer to God because they have seen. Well, they could be. I'm closer to God when, I, when, I, when I'm at the altar with the body and blood of Jesus. It's bread and wine. It's stuff. Created stuff. Ooh, good job. Okay. It has something attached to it. It's a, a promise. The problem with the relics, it, it, there's a lot of what attached to it. Not certainty, but... Well, yeah, doubt. I would say doubt. All right, so that's acts of devotion. That would be one step removed. But let's play this out a little bit, though. So that, that kind of goes back to the icon and kissing the icon and all that. So let, let's just play with, uh, like with uh, Eastern Orthodox. So they say, well, the icon is not, it's not, I'm not worshiping this thing, but it's a window into something more. I think Pastor Bruzek talked about this, right, a couple years ago, right? I mean, I don't want to, okay. He should have. All right. Um, so icons are a window to something more. So it's, it's, not, it's not a mirror, it's a window. So they would say, well, why wouldn't you want to kiss Jesus? Well, I mean, of course, we, you know, we're kind of weird with that thing. You know, I don't kiss, we in America, we don't kiss, you know, people who aren't our loved ones, basically, or, you know. Unless you're in Manhattan, then everyone kisses each other on the cheek and all that. But, so, I mean, getting over that whole aspect, but, like, they would say, well, why wouldn't you want to kiss Jesus? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't you want to show those acts of love towards Jesus? And we would say, well, you're just doing it to the thing. Well, they would say, no, I'm not. So now you're kind of left. Well, yeah, you are. No, I'm not. And they actually could say that, and I would agree with them, because of now this theology in the Bible here, this, this idea that being made in the image of God has a lot more than just simply kind of a rational thought or the fact we have a soul. But it has to do with actually like an image, stuff. Because being made in the image of God means being made in the image of Jesus. Jesus was a... Uh, a person that I can love and I can hold and I can kiss. I can walk behind. 
I can reach out to. And so, I mean, all that stuff I can do with the icon. I can do it with my crucifix. I can do it with people. What's that? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not an icon then. And that's where, I mean, personally, I don't show any active, this is just me. I don't want to judge anybody. But if, it, if it's not like what I call a real icon, I don't do anything with it, which usually I have like not real icons. Like uh, I use them as examples. Like I would take them to like confirmation class or um, take them to somewhere where if they get trashed, I don't care. But like my real icon, the one that was like, like made, like I, I do take that out for pastor chats. But I, I don't take that around because it's, it, I wouldn't treat it lightly because it's real and it's nice and it can be, uh, all, that, all that theology can be played out where the, the ones that are kind of laminated on there and are not gold, you kind of have to imagine, oh, hey, this kind of yellowish, that's supposed to be gold. And when you see that, it's supposed to be illuminating, but it's not really and it won't ever be illuminated. So, I mean, it's, a, it's an icon image, an iconic, you know, kind of image, but I, I don't, I wouldn't, like, say my prayers in front of it. I'm not saying it's an idol, I'm just saying it's a nice thing. Cindy. I was just thinking about doing family devotions at home and how hard it is to, you know, the devil. Oh, yeah, good job. Right. Focus, but you've given the kids these little crosses. Yes. Yeah, right. In that way, it's not an idol, but it's kind of a reminder. Yeah, it's a means. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, actually, we'll actually, let's, let's just kind of talk about this. Is that real quick, and then we'll be done. Um, when we talk about idols, we usually talk about sight, okay? Icons and sight too, but this is really important for us to kind of keep, kind of keep the order of things. God calls us into existence. He talks, and we exist. We're there, so it's a word, right? But what we don't quite understand is that word is always attached to a, a, a an image or a, a thing. You know, when I say thing, I mean like something you can touch. I mean, I can see. I can just deal with. Um. And so this is important for us because sometimes, so we have this order, call, kind of response, thing. But sometimes we have to go, so you have this, it kind of works this way. God calls, here's a uh, mouth, uh, you know, I'm in, I'm in existence here. But we have Jesus in between us. But sometimes in order to get back to that mouth, I have to go through what God has called so the crucifix, for instance. I, uh, when Soren and Stefan are looking, or you kind of, I mean, you and anybody else looking at this crucifix, you want to think about it in terms of that order, is that he, they're interacting with the thing that God called into existence. But not as the end of itself, but as a means in which to go back to what started it all. And that's the, call, the, the God's mouth or word of God. And so that's where... We have to kind of keep that in, in mind here. 
is that oftentimes we, we just want to get rid of that thing that God called into existence and get right to the mouth of God. But that's not how God works. God works through means. And so these icons, and as we kind of find out, that's, that's the process or the order of things that come through. So this thing can actually help me meditate upon God's Word. And that's where we're at. When we meditate upon God's Word, then we reveal the place where we're supposed to be. Standing before God in this place, doing the things that God has us do, create. Um, all right, so, so we'll be revealing our, our kind of, this is kind of the framework that we want to think about, is that, uh, so as we kind of read the book, and you'll hear a lot of this echoed, like Carol just pointed out. Um, if you're really into reading, then I would recommend one other book. It's Bruce Benson, Graven Ideologies. Big time nerdville. But I enjoy that a lot. Graven Ideologies. Play on words, right? Graven Images. So, um, he's a Wheaton College professor. So, What's that? No, no, it's, 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 it's really, I mean, I, it's, I think it's interesting. All right, so um, next week, uh, so, okay, so read the book. Start reading the book. It's not like we'll go through a chapter a week, but we'll go through the, um, if you could read the introduction and the first chapter. It's not, it's not a long book, obviously. So we'll be spending time on kind of meditating more upon this stuff from her perspective. Okay, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.